it's time for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Welcome to episode 628 of the Wayne's Comics Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. This week it's another great doubleheader episode with two fun interviews, starting off with cartoonist Bob Fingerman from That's Some Business You're In, then wrapping up with Matt Knowles and Steph Cannon from Insymmetry Creations. Bob's terrific book That's Some Business You're In is being funded right now on zoop.gg. It's described this way. Essential for any fan of Bob Fingerman's work, this career memoir details his 40 years of toiling in comics and boasts a huge amount of art, much of which is presented for the first time and scanned from the originals. We talk about much of his career, including how he started, as well as what he's up to these days. Be sure to back this project before it concludes on Friday, March 1. Then everything wraps up with another engaging discussion with Matt Knowles and Steph Cannon from Insymmetry Creations. They have a Kickstarter going on right now for Heirs of Isildur, The Perilous Prospects Books 1 through 3, which is described this way. Will Michael Isildur's return from his supernatural sabbatical be enough to turn the tide on the apocalyptic collapse of Shadow's Haven? This project is doing well, but needs your support to be funded by Thursday, February 29 at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so be sure to back it once you finish listening to this episode. I'm sure you're going to enjoy what they all have to say. There's a lot to get to in this episode, so let's get on with the show. Blessed and cursed with a memorably comical name, Bob Fingerman was fated to be a cartoonist. And that's what he's done with his life since the moment he could first grasp a crayon. 2024 is a milestone for Fingerman, his 40th anniversary working of working professionally as a writer and artist. Fingerman has cut a curious swath through comicdom with his idiosyncratic style and scripts. And today I'm talking with Bob Fingerman. How you doing, Bob? I, I'm doing well, and yes, you are talking to me. Yay, how about that? Uh, the project that we're talking about is called That's Some Business You're In, and it's available on zoop.gg. In fact, the direct place to go there is zoop.gg forward slash C is in cat forward slash Bob Fingerman. And you want to be sure to go directly there because they'll take you right there. And already, and of course, we're recording this early in the, the campaign, uh, just a few hours in, and you are almost double your goal of $5,000. So congratulations, Bob. Yeah, whoopee. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's off to a good start. And now, uh, hopefully heading towards an even stronger finish. That'd be good. My understanding is this is your first crowdfunding event. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I've looked at uh, I've looked at all the options. Yeah, it's when crowdfunding first came along, uh, it was something I kind of looked a little bit askance at, but like so many new ways of doing things, it's definitely come into its own and, you know, now it's a 
basically a cross-industry standard for putting out work that uh, you really want to have total control over, which I think is very nice, you know? And not only that, it, it allows uh, prog- uh, uh, things and projects to actually get made that if you wanted to say the big two or even now the big three companies to produce, they're not likely to do. So books like yours actually get to come out and, and, and function. And I always fear, what did we miss before crowdfunding came around? Because it's all these wonderful things that people and the ideas people had never came to be because they didn't have crowdfunding to support it. So uh, I think you're in a great place. Uh, as I said, when we're recording, you're already double that. How long did it take when the, when the project started before you, uh, you, you reached your goal of 5,000? Do you remember? Uh, well, you know, I don't want to be disingenuous and say that I haven't been monitoring it. Uh, I'm trying not to be like a mother hen and just obsessing over it. But, um, you know, checking in every so often, I think it cleared the mark, you know, by about noon today. And I, I believe it launched at eight in the morning. So that's pretty good, you know, for a few hours. Very good. Now, I'll give you a warning. What, what, what crowdfunding, what often happened, because this is your first time, you probably haven't done this yet. You do the refresh button. There are people who go on and refresh, 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 refresh. And if somebody doesn't support it in, uh, you know, during one of those refreshes, they go, oh, no, nobody's going to support it again. And so the I, I, good news is you probably won't have to experience that because you're already in a great position. So that, that's good for you. Yeah, I'm going to try not to uh, <laughs> chip away at my own mel- mental well-being, you know, as <laughs> precarious as it is already. Well, I have to say that uh, it's uh, it's uh, something that crowdfunders do endlessly. And, you know, the, the, when things start, it's usually really strong. And then you get like a, a lull towards the middle. Yes, I've, then, been, I've been warned about the, the sort of <laughs> sag between the uh, beginning and the end. So, you know, I've got, some, I've got some ideas of how to jazz things up a little bit. I don't want people to get too complacent. So uh, yeah. there's that fine line between, you know, bullying people <laughs> into supporting you <laughs> and just letting everything just go slack. I, I, I think I can find something that will be a tolerable middle ground. Okay, because Ron Randall, who, who does a trekker and very successfully over the years in crowdfunding, the one advice he got that I thought was is always worth it is if you're doing social media, if you're doing too much, what feels to you like too much, it's probably just the, the right amount. So that, yeah. that's that's what I'll pass on to you from what his success has been. So that, that uh, I think that's something just to be conscious of. You yes, probably can't yeah, do I, I'm going to have to fight my urge because you know my basically the way I'm wired is I don't like to be a pain in the neck. But <laughs> I'm going to have to be a little bit more assertive than usual, a little bit more uh, proactive, as they say. Yeah, because that's, that's a good thing to, to uh, uh, especially on the first time, I think it's probably get the word out that you're doing this because people are, are not used to you using social media or uh, do crowdfunding for that. So good thing to do. That's, uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about the book, the That's Some Business You're In. It's described on here. Of course, the big thing I, I'm really happy is you have a foreword by Bill Sienkiewicz, which is always a good thing. Uh, he does great stuff. Yes, he's, he's doing He's brilliant. So uh, <laughs> I always tell the story when I go to when I saw I could never figure out how to pronounce his name until I went to New York 
Comic-Con. And he had a booth there, a great big area. And at the top, it's and I see this wherever I see him, Sin, and then in big letters, Kev, and Itch at the ends, and Kevich. And I said, oh, that's how you pronounce it. Okay, good. Yes, good very helpful. I, I thought it was Sinkiewicz or something. I, I wasn't sure what to do. So when I saw that, I said, thank goodness, I'll always know how to do that now. Anyway, back to the book. Uh, the uh, Let me read a quick description of it. It says, essential for any fan of Bob Fingerman's work, this career memoir details his 40 years of toiling in comics and boasts a huge amount of art, much of which is presented for the first time and scanned from the originals. Take a trip through the beloved cartoonist's artistic journey and buy some of his rarely offered art or signed comics while you're at it. And as we said, the the good thing is that you're already past your goal. And by the time this posts, you'll probably be uh, sailing the stratosphere, let's hope. And good things will come of it. Now, there is a quote from Patton Oswalt that I, I have to read that's on here. I think it's kind of fun. The, okay. highs, the, low, the highs, the lows, the what the hell is happenings, Bob Fingerman chronicled life with hilarious, sometimes cringy honesty. Here's to 40 more. Never stop working, Bob. Yeah, it's a sort of it's sort of a benediction and a curse all in one. <laughs> so that's fine. Well, that's, I, yeah, that's if I I don't think I have another forty years in me, uh, but who knows? My my dad, my late dad, always used to say, "He's like, yeah, oh, you're going to live to be 120." So who knows? Wow. Maybe wow. maybe he'll prove to be right. Well, <laughs> that, that'll be good. whatever you want to do. Uh, I, I I was listening to an interview that you had given a couple of years back. Uh, I was on YouTube. And you made a, a, a statement under that I thought was really profound. You were talking about art versus product. Hmm. And I thought that was a really profound thing. You were talking about the fact that it's that the, the, the product is great for people to buy, but for the artist, the art part is often very important. Do you want to elaborate a little more on that? Uh, any more thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think obviously it depends on what kind of thing you're doing. But since the bulk of my work has been self-generated, um, where I'm not working with you know other people's IP, as it were. But I think art, which is a big word. I mean, art's a very, in a lot of ways, it's a very self-important word. Um but we'll go with it for for the sake of of simplicity. I think art has to come first for the creator. You know, I, I over the years I've I've met a few people, not too many, but a few who always think of the audience first. In fact, I had one friend uh, who even would kind of focus group. A project before he'd start it to see if he thought the you know the market would be interested. And while I get oh wait a minute. Yeah, okay, sorry. <laughs> I thought the mic went dead. Um I get the 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 pragmatism of that, but I think it completely compromised the kind of art you could do if you're putting the audience and the market first. That seems strange to me. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I really do. So that, that that's a good thing to think. I think a good way to approach it. But I also, you know, the, uh, the you have to be cognizant of of the you know the sort of amorphous conceptual audience because unless you're doing stuff that's completely obscure and you know just 
peculiar to your own interests. Um, you know, that's, that's valid too, but I, I, I think I straddle both because I think the work I've done over the years is, you know, uh, to use that word idiosyncratic as it is, I think it's all very accessible. I mean, some of the subject matter might not be for everybody, but I've never gone out of my way to, you know, be avant-garde, outre, and, you know, where people just look at it and say, huh, I don't get it. I think it's pretty <laughs> gettable. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, speaking of your work, let me read a couple of things from also from the zoop.gg page that talk about you're best known for your cult comic series, Minimum Wage, the series that racked up critical accolades and a devoted following and listed a whole bunch of fans, including Mr. Oswald, who we did. And each page boasted sticky, uncomfortable truths drenched in bleakly familiar humor. <laughs> and then you talked about the fact in 2018, you realized your childhood dream to become one of Mad's usual gang of idiots. Alas, Mad was soon thereafter essentially euthanized. Bob accepts only partial blame for that. I thought that yeah. was funny. Then your latest books include the graphic novel Dottie's Inferno from Heavy Metal and Virus and the radically revised author's edition of his novel Pariah, now Pariah Redux. And so it's got that lists all the companies that you've worked for. And holy smoke, we could spend the rest of the interview listing all the companies you work for. But the big ones that people will know Dark Horse, DC, Marvel, Image, IDW. Uh, Z2, which I, that's a great book, a great company, and gosh, all the other good things. So you've been a busy guy for 40 years, I have to say. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't lacked for um, for a, a work ethic. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird. I mean, preparing this book has been a very interesting experience, both uh, just the actual practical hands-on making of it. But also, you know, when you're looking backwards, it it's really more than 40 years. It's it's 40 years professionally, but, you know, I started drawing right at the beginning. So really, I've been putting marks on paper for closer to six decades, which is bonkers. <laughs> wow. And, you know, the book features some of that, too. I really wanted to have a full arc. And, and frankly, I find kid, kid art, uh, especially kid art by people who ended up doing it professionally. I find it fascinating because it's like you kind of look for what are the markers? Were there any markers early in their work that kind of previewed the direction they would go in? But it's it's an interesting thing because, you know, you're not just looking at physical pieces of work. Your brain starts also kind of pinwheeling through where you were at that time in your life and what kind of emotions you were going through and what drove you to draw this piece or that piece. And, you know, full disclosure, there are also things that I found in my archives where I looked at them and and it was sort of like, I guess I did this. It's like, yeah, that's, that's my art. I don't remember doing this at all. So <laughs> there's, it's, it's, it's been an interesting kind of, um, Roller coaster seems melodramatic. It's not like I was pivoting all over the place, uh, having emotional moments, but it's been interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever seen Alex Ross's? Uh, he does. He basically paints superheroes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw an illustration that he had done when he was a kid, and I have to say, it looked very much like what I did when I was a kid. Now, somewhere between 
<laughs> you know, but between that time and when he got to be an adult, he got to be an accomplished, tremendous uh, comic artist. And I didn't, <laughs> I have to say. So I get a kick up and I see that. I, when did you realize that you wanted to do art for a living? Was it when you were really young? You, you sit there when you picked up a crayon. Oh, was yeah. it that early? Yeah, I was, I was definitely one of those kids who teachers uh, kind of hate to encounter, the kid who knows what his path is going to be. So when the teacher says that, you know, you're not crushing uh, algebra and you look back and say, I don't need to know this. I'm going to be an artist. And the teacher says, well, you don't know that. And you kind of give the teacher a look and yeah, I, I knew what I wanted. I, I, I had great clarity, great and terrible clarity as a, <laughs> a person. Um, you don't quite get away with that as much when you're in elementary school, but by junior high school, they begin to think, mm, yeah, he probably does know what he wants to do. <laughs> I think I had a, a very unflappable kind of almost zealous uh, interest in what I was doing, you know, which sometimes was obviously very detrimental <laughs> to to what the lesson plan was. But, you know, I I managed to do all right. I think it was more for fear of, of uh, you know, disappointing my mother than anything that came from within. You know, she took school pretty seriously. So mm -hmm. I got the good grades and managed to at least uh, get by. But uh, I'll tell you, when I got to, I went to a specialty high school, the High School of Art and Design, in Manhattan. And that was amazing because after 10th grade, you didn't have to take math or science anymore. <laughs> uh, and it was all liberal arts as they lumped them all together. So, you know, I really got to just focus on stuff that was interesting to me. I think they still taught history, but history is fine. I liked history. Uh, but everything else was creative writing and um, you know, all art related. It's wonderful. It was kind of like, okay, I did my, my nine terrible years of normal school. <laughs> now I can maybe blossom a little bit instead of just being the square peg. Who's like, stop Robert. They always, teachers always called me Robert, Robert, stop drawing. Okay. Well, the good news was you kept drawing. That's, that's the good news. Yeah, I showed them. <laughs> and I don't know anything about algebra. So see, it, it all falls into place. Right, right. Well, well, talk about how you broke into the industry. Uh, what kinds of things? And of course, Harvey Kurtzman is a, a big name in your past, too. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? About, uh, you know, you're uh, getting along with him and, and how this all came together? Yeah, well, the next, you know, the next step in my so-called formal education. It was all pretty, <laughs> in fairness, it was all pretty informal. Um, but after art and design, I went to the School of Visual Arts, or SVA as everyone refers to it. And the reason I chose that school other than, because there were other art schools in New York, I have to say, growing up and spending my entire life in New York City, you know, you, you had pretty much everything at your fingertips and there were multiple art schools to choose from, which is a luxury, you know, I, I cop to that. Um, but art and design, uh, not art and design, sorry, SVA 
at that time was the only one that offered a cartooning major. Hmm. And um, so that already was the incentive, but seeing that their faculty included Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman, and in the catalog, Art Spiegelman, um, although I didn't get to take his class. I really wanted to, but I, I he went on, I believe he went on sabbatical. And if I do the mental math, I, and I could be completely wrong, and if somebody uh, leaves comments or, or anything, uh, they can tell me, nope, you're wrong. But I think maybe Spiegelman stepped away uh, to go work on Mouse, his masterpiece. So, you know, if that's the case, he had more than ample justification Mm -hmm. for walking away from teaching for a little while. Um, Even if it was at my expense, how dare him? Um, (laughs) But, you know, I can't complain. I mean, I had two absolute pillars of comics, Kurtzman and Eisner. You you can't do much better than that. Mm-mm. Wow, that's great. So uh, my understanding is, is I, I was watching another interview you had done, and you didn't actually complete your degree at SVA. No, I did true? not. After my second year, I dropped out, or self-graduated, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I. well, the thing is, I started working professionally, you know, here we go. It all dovetails into uh, why I've been doing this for 40 years and in relative, <laughs> at least in, in terms of the, the, the vast scope of time uh, at a relatively uh, young age, I can say I've been doing this for 40 years. I started when I was 19. Um, and that was reason enough for me to say, okay, my my education is done. I'm now a professional because within the span of the final months of my time at SVA, I started working for a very small press magazine uh, that uh, uh, this uh, gent named Pete Friedrich, Roland Pete Friedrich, he he was a former student of Will Eisner, and he used to come to Eisner's class every so often to visit. And he also was basically scouting for budding talent for a comic anthology magazine that he did called Pure Entertainment. Um, the interesting thing about the Pure Entertainment title there was this little mini kind of enclave. It's all very New York and all very looking back at it. It's kind of, kind of cool. Cause this really is the origin story of a lot of, of people. Uh, there was this little collective called look mom comics and they operated out of a, out of a loft in Soho back when Soho was cheap and affordable to <laughs> groups of starving <laughs> artists. Um, and they put out comic anthologies in magazine format, basically the same format that Love and Rockets would be known for. Uh, But we're talking like 1980 or 81. Uh, So really way before the curve. And that's where Dan Klaus got his start um, because he did some some comics uh, for Look Mom. They did a comic called Psycho Comics where he did some, I believe he did at least one of the covers and some stories. And um, Bob Camp, who ended up you know, really becoming a well-known name in the animation field, uh, especially for Ren and Stimpy and Vince Waller and uh, Pat Redding. And uh, all these people were just beginning to cut their teeth. Peter Cooper um, 
K-U-P-E-R, that Cooper. Um, he was part of this group and it was, it was all these young folks doing alternative comics in magazine format. So uh, at any rate, I'm sorry, it's a very long answer, but that combined with working for Harvey Kurtzman on these uh, humor paperbacks called Nuts, uh, which he was doing for the uh, youth market, and then some extracurricular work that I did just to amuse myself uh, ended up landing me a book contract with a European publisher. And so, you know, whether my, whether my big head was warranted, I thought, well, I've already made it, so I'm out of here. So, you know, I finished my second year, but then really I immediately started working uh, professionally and, and not long after that. Uh, I started working for Cracked Magazine, and Cracked became my first regular gig, uh, which paid enough for me to you know leave home and get an apartment and start living a, a quote unquote adult life. How long did you work at Cracked? Um, it was, I think, just about three years, maybe a little over, maybe a little under. Um, that would be easy to check just by looking at the the issues and saying seeing how long I was in it. But you know, I started in '85, and it might have wrapped for me in '88, but it might have been early '89. That's hard for me to. I don't have the uh, mm-hmm. the paper in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was pretty much in every issue uh, and some specials. You know, I would do covers mm-hmm. and things, and it was. It was a, a hell of a training ground because it really made me have to work on my skill set for stuff that I hadn't done prior, you know, especially things like doing likenesses and caricature and and also, of course, the most important thing for pursuing a career, uh, meeting deadlines. You know, wow. it, it yeah. definitely uh, I was always diligent but there's a difference between being diligent and being disciplined. And I became very, very disciplined uh, at that point, which was great. It served me well. All right, good. Well, let's talk about some of your creations. Let's talk about, start with the ones that are on zoop.gg that people can uh, add to uh, their backing. Uh, Bloodsucker, which you're (laughs) happy happy to sign. Uh, Talk a little bit about that one to start, why don't you? Well, that one, you know, not everything starts with the purest motivation. Um, even though I was in a committed relationship, I was a fan of the kind of underground punk icon Lydia Lunch. Uh, to me, I just thought, wow, she is just about the coolest <laughs> coolest mm-hmm. person I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very convoluted way of getting on her radar this is going to be awful because it's going to seem like, oh, there's Bob dropping names. But I was also a fan of Penn and Teller uh, back before they really were known, like when they would just do performances at little clubs and things like that. Hmm. And I'm trying to remember how exactly this meeting was arranged. I know it was, there were a few kind of uh, gate gates that I had to get past. Um, I was working. 
you know, my I have a very checkered past in terms of places I've worked for, and for years, I wrestled with feeling kind of ashamed of of all, of all the uh, pornographic publications that that paid my bills. Um, now I look back at it and I'm, I'm kind of glad I did all that because it gives you, <laughs> there's a lot of texture to your career when you can say, oh, I've worked for Screw. I worked for Al Goldstein. I worked for Bob Guccione. You know, I worked for all these, <laughs> these wow. very questionable, uh, people. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you work for questionable people, you end up with anecdotes. If everybody, <laughs> if everybody's respectable, uh, that makes it far less interesting. But because of working for Screw, which really just ended up becoming a hangout for me, it felt far more like a, a, a clubhouse than a place of um, employment. Um, a friend of mine who was one of the editors there, I should say an editor who became a friend and unfortunately is no longer with us, a guy named David Aaron Clark, he was very much a part of the underground kind of music and, and literature scene. And I think he somehow knew, Oh, I know why I'm sorry. It's funny. It's the kind of thing where sometimes when you're talking, memories begin to kind of unclog themselves. <laughs> um, Al Goldstein, the publisher of screw was a very big early supporter of Penn and Teller. And actually, Penn, to be not chronological, but many, many years later, when when Al's fortunes had completely changed, Penn really repaid his gratitude for for Goldstein plugging Penn and Teller all the time. Uh, Penn became his benefactor and basically gave him a roof over his head when Goldstein was actually homeless. So, um, uh, so, but at any rate. Because of that connection between Screw and Penn and Teller, I did go see them sometimes. And Dave had told me that Penn <laughs> was a big fan of pornography. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And in those <laughs> days, I was doing lots of dirty comics. So I introduced myself to Penn and. He gave me his mailing address and I sent him some of the dirty comics I was doing and he loved them. And that sort of gave me some cred. Like I wasn't just, mm -hmm. I wasn't just some fan. I was a fan who also generated dirty comics uh, mm -hmm. that he liked. And so I, I kind of got his approval and he was friends with Lydia and they had done stuff together. Lydia was actually on a network special. They did. The world was a different place in the uh in the 80s so at any rate between uh pen kind of giving me his blessing and a connection with uh this editor i ended up meeting up with lydia and you know i was pretty scared to be honest because her reputation preceded her and the funny thing is by the time i met her um my first marriage was over, so you know, I'm sure in my insane, naive brain, I was thinking, "Oh, she's going to like me too." But of course, she was she was in a relationship. Um, but we hit it off very well, and and she seemed, you know, she liked my art, and she was very eager to kind of do something together, which made me feel very, uh, 
validated, you know, it was kind of like, okay, you know, I guess, I guess we'll, so we had originally talked about something much more ambitious and I'm not sure. I think, I guess her schedule just didn't permit her fleshing out this idea, which was, you know, cause the crack epidemic was really going full force at that time. Mm. And she had some idea about like crack babies and all, all, all kinds of crazy stuff. And we didn't end up doing that, but she did end up sending me this manuscript uh, which wasn't really a uh, an act, it wasn't a comic script and she basically said can you do something with this and and that ended up becoming bottom feeder which really was not bottom feeder i'm sorry that's my novel bloodsucker i'm blending my titles um bloodsucker um which isn't really a comic book it's it's almost more of a, a bizarre children's book because it's full page illustrations with you know a minimal amount of text on each page it was an interesting experiment you know it wasn't what i expected to be doing with her um but again it it kind of it was a cool thing and gave me a little bit of of uh scenester cred as it were <laughs> so mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. for whatever good that was very cool. Well, let's jump the other direction, and let's talk about the Archie Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, boy. In the same, did, almost in the same breath. Yeah. How did that happen? Because that's quite a, uh, a, a, quite a change, shall we say, from uh, or the other. How did that? Because the reason I bring that up is because there's a signed, uh, there's, I don't know if there's going to be any left by the time this posts, but there are five uh, $50 bundles of your Archie Teenage Turtle um, books. I guess it's one to three, it looks like. How yeah. did that come to be? Yeah, boy, isn't that a good question? <laughs> I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had a better answer because this is where some of my memory is a little foggier than than I would think because it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big transition because really the only comics I had done at that point were all – you know, for, for lack of a better term, dirty comics, you know, I was, uh, Eros comics, which was an offshoot of Fantagraphics, um, was pretty much my only publisher of, of comic book type comic books, the, uh, ignominiously dubbed floppies, a term I'll never embrace. Um, <laughs> and so I don't honestly remember who it was at our, I, you know, the thing is I wanted to branch out i didn't want to just you know live in the gutter forever and the opportunity to do turtles came up somebody at the archie imprint liked my work for eros and and somehow and unfortunately this like i say this is where my memory is failing me um that led to me getting assigned a run on the uh, teenage mutant ninja turtles adventures uh, comic for the Archie imprint. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was like a night and day shift where mm-hmm. you know, everything was super adult. And then this was not only um, for a younger audience, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Archie version was for an even younger audience. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, mm-hmm. the Mirage stuff could go pretty, pretty hard within reason, mm-hmm. but Archie definitely skewed more towards the youth market. So yeah, that was a very interesting experience. And again, it was it was so different. I had never done somebody else's IP before. You know, what uh, uh, 
yeah, so it was it was radically different. Um, mm-hmm. I know there's <laughs> I probably shouldn't talk about anything negative, um, but I know there's a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan site that absolutely despised my run on it. They were just like Bob Fingerman's turtles comics are like a cancer on the brand it's really so maybe it wasn't wasn't the most organic fit that ever existed but uh, you know i think i did a pretty good job so but what didn't they like i can't imagine they hated everything about it and they hated it with such passion i kind of respect it you know (laughs) when somebody has that kind of anger over something let's face it as trivial as teenage mutant ninja turtles uh no disrespect to to, to the turtles but you know it's it's not like just earth shaking of earth shaking importance in this person mm-hmm. such <laughs> anger so mm. it's like okay you know that's, that's i'm sorry wild. i'm sorry I, you know I, <laughs> I, I i feel every confidence i would do a much better job now but i don't think i did that terrible a job back then do you I remember when put a lot was? of work into it when was that in the 80s mm. 90s uh, 1993. Okay, I believe. Okay, so the- I think I was working on it in maybe 92, and it started coming out in 93. Okay. okay well, I I don't know. Some I, I, there are the internet is famous for uh, lovers and haters. Oh, absolutely. And well, uh, <laughs> there was middle ground, and now there is no middle ground. It's there are people who love John Burns artwork, and then there are people who hate John Burns artwork. And you don't get anywhere in between. And I'm always like, okay, what if you like it? I mean, you know, where do you go for that? So I'm always, it's just the internet is a, is a interesting place. I do have to say, but, uh, but yeah, that that's one of the things you can get. And hopefully it's still available by when this posts. But uh, uh, I, I did want to talk about some of your other work over the years. So one of the early ones you did was one was called white. Like she, yes, that was and- my first solo graphic novel that was me really getting to uh, do something mm-hmm. all mine that wasn't prurient okay and then it went to minimum wage and more recently it's uh, Dottie's Inferno which I have to read the description of it just kills me it, it makes me laugh it says meet Dottie in life she was a call girl in death she's been damned to work in hell's inhuman resources department new mail arrivals division assigning wayward souls their crummy afterlives <laughs> yep do <laughs> you remember how many pages is in that I'm sorry do you remember how many pages is in Dottie's Inferno? Uh, the whole book probably is about 72 pages, 72 I think. pages, okay. Because the first half okay. of the book is Dottie's Inferno, and then there's a bunch of strips featuring these uh, two demons, Ralph and Borax, who have kind of a, a Bert and Ernie sort of friendship. Mm-hmm. Only, only definitely not for kids. <laughs> okay. And he went to think, oh, Bert and Ernie, I'll go get that for my yeah, dad. No, this is not no, for no. kids. Not quite, not quite the same, but uh, a whole bunch of other things. Apparently, he did. Did you do some Scooby Doo? I did. I've I've had my toe dip in so many unlikely places. <laughs> it's wow, which again, makes for an interesting career. Uh, but That's, yeah, I wrote some Scooby Doo for for DC when they were partnered. But for all I know, they still might be um, with Cartoon Network. Oh well, maybe Mad or something. You were involved with Mad? Did that have? Did that help you get in Scooby Doo? Oh no! Scooby Doo came way before Mad, way, okay, way, way okay. before Mad. Um, okay. 
So wow. Yeah, no, that was there was a you know there was a little interlude there where because of minimum wage, uh, a lot of people liked the writing in minimum wage. They also saw I could write ensemble type stuff. So mm-hmm. you know, I started getting some interesting gigs, mostly as a writer, uh, mm-hmm. and I like writing for other people. Um, it's always interesting when you're an artist yourself to see how other people, um, execute your script. Hmm. And then there's also, it looks like you had something in Hellboy, Weird Tales number three. Yes. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I've been friends with Mike for many, many years. And, uh, when, when that opportunity came along and that was, you know, definitely because of the Dark Horse connection, Dark Horse and I worked together on, on many books for many years. And, um, but yeah, the opportunity to do kind of my spin on Hellboy was, was definitely one I was not going to, uh, let slip through my fingers. Very good. Very good. Uh, One of the titles that makes me laugh is one called recess pieces. Yes. That was another, that that was another solo graphic novel. Um, yeah, the, log line on that would be really short. It was basically Little Rascals meets Dawn of the Dead. It was a very, very, <laughs> very violent, uh, hard R-rated book featuring uh, children and zombies. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Actually, a- trying, to get mm-hmm. that, trying to get that one back in print. I've, I've been working mm-hmm. on a heavily, heavily revised version of that one, sort of improving it and bringing it up to speed and so, fingers crossed. Well, there's one more I got to mention. You deserved it. Which the, the title right away uh, is it's it's a novel. That, that's no, no, you comic. deserved no, you deserved it. Is is a, a collection of humor uh, comics. Oh, okay. Yeah, the cover uh, the, the cover's a little uh, p- peculiar because it's it really <laughs> is just a very gentle kind of pink cursive type treatment with a blood splatter on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I went through a little phase where I got very designy with my books and I'm not sure if it always was, was helpful. Um, mm-hmm. Probably should have had a, a more, uh, a cover more indicative of the content of that book. But yeah, that, that book was uh, a collection of some sort of very over the top humor strips. The, the central one being a color version of a of a two issue mini mini series I did for Dark Horse called Otis Goes Hollywood, which was about a big dum dum with a penchant for very outsized violence getting discovered by a Hollywood talent scout. <laughs> so, well, the description for you deserved is what makes me. Uh, I have to laugh about is Bob Fingerman a cynical misanthrope or a disappointed humanitarian? Dare we suggest maybe both? And you deserved that the sensitive creator of the acclaimed graphic novel begged the question, accesses his darker side, serving up this caustic collection of comical cautionary chronicles. Uh, is that accurate description? or is, is Yeah, it's pretty right? accurate. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I wrote that description. So. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've never been shy about writing my own book copy. Okay. Um, yeah, you at a certain point you just embrace writing about yourself in third person. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, it, it to this day it's still pretty accurate. Although I weirdly I think I might be less cynical than I used to be. Mm. Um, 
uh, you know, part of part of my journey in life has been to shed as much anger as I I was a very angry young man and and very even angry not so young man. I don't know. Uh, new, living in New York, definitely, uh, it kind of if you're wired a certain way, it sort of beats you up psychically a little bit. So, um, <laughs> I've I've shed some of that. Okay. Life, life well, is a journey. <laughs> well, uh, uh, again, that some business you're in is going to conclude uh, towards the end of February right at the moment. Uh, again, if you go to zoop.gg forward slash C, which is cat C forward slash Bob Fingerman, you'll be able to get to go to the thing. Now, I do want to mention there's, there's lots of original art pages available at least now there's only one of each course because they're original art and by the time people get there oh even now there's a whole bunch of stuff that's no longer available including a remark on your hardcover there was 20 of them and it looks like it's already signed up for 21 how did that happen yeah you get 21 out of 20 hmm. okay so somebody's overcommitting math <laughs> yeah, somebody's overcommitted you yeah, you've overcommitted you there. I'm afraid but, that's uh, that's a new, I guess, a new version of a baker's dozen. But okay, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> so there's all kinds of good things. There's uh, a page from American Splendor, uh, number four jazz combo page. There's also two original art pages from the the rock stars speak and cracked, and those are, are, are they're not going to come cheap. Let's just say that. Yeah, that was a collaboration with Peter Bagg. Speaking of cartoonists writing for other cartoonists, yeah, Peter Bagg was another one of the uh, the folks living in New York those days and going around and starting his career. So, yeah, I like to think I'm part of a very interesting graduating class of people who ended up becoming, you know, pretty well known in the alternative comics world. Rick Altergott was one of that gang too, and you know, he's got a new book coming out in the next month or so from Fantagraphics. So, wow. Yeah, it was okay. interesting. So, so you've got 40 years under your belt now. Are there things that you still want to do in the business that, that you would like to do? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I'm what, not what would you like to do? For, well, I still have a bunch of other books that I'd love to do. You know, I've got outlines and scripts for, for a whole bunch. So, um, you know, finding a home for them uh, will be, something that's going to be keeping me busy i'm sure for the next you know several years of of hopefully doing books and and getting them out there i i would love to get something going in the in the film world that i've certainly um had some promising uh how do you put it nibbles but you know sometimes sometimes as as anyone can tell you that is a very uh tricky business to mm -hmm. uh, navigate your way into, but I, mm -hmm. I remain optimistic. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Chris, as I, and I saw this interview. I was watching of you that you did a couple of years back. You had moved to Los Angeles specifically to try to uh, have a better chance of getting involved in, in that, in that part of the entertainment industry. So yeah. hopefully that's going to work out. So hopefully. Yeah. And you know, good. as a, as a formerly, Lifelong New Yorker, um, I got to say, whether it's disloyal to to New York, I'm very glad I, I moved to Los Angeles. I really like it here. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. And all the success you've had, boy, I, I, I can only see good things coming. And, and maybe you'll have that some more business you're in somewhere down the road when you wow, uh, that would be great. Doing another be book like that. 
because well, look at how well you're doing already. And man, let me tell you, you're over 100 supporters when we're talking. Who knows what it's going to be when this posts uh, in a few days. But you're doing great. This is off to a, a stellar start. And I expect we're only going to get even bigger and better things from Bob Fingerman in the future. And by the way, I don't think that's a a silly or a comical name. What was how they say? <laughs> Did you? You must have written that. It's this uh, memorably comical name. I I don't yeah. think that's a comical name. Oh, I don't know. My entire <laughs> my entire uh, life begs to differ. I've got I literally. Okay, I'll, well, we I know we're wrapping it up, but there is a checkout clerk at one of the local supermarkets, and it, literally every single time. He sees my name pop up when I use my uh, credit card. He always looks at me and he says, Fingerman, that's your name. (laughs) So I'm never going to be free of that. It's okay. I've I've come to embrace it. Uh, What are you going to do? It's my brand at this point. I have to really quickly tell I used to love Joan Rivers because it was self-deprecating humor. Mm. She used to tell this joke where she read somewhere that wrapping yourself in saran wrap and laying on the table with, with uh, enhance the experience with your husband, and her husband comes in, and looks, and says, "Oh, leftovers again." <laughs> yeah, there you go. And that that kind of humor still gets me. And and so I that just now that I understand why why you're saying that, I I get that a lot better. So it's going to be still. I think we haven't heard the last of Bob Fingerman, and I think we're going to hear lots of good things going forward. So Bob, uh, already bless, a big bless success. Bless your soul. Thank you. Well, you're already a huge success here on Zoop.gg. I think we're going to get even bigger. I don't. I, I can't even guess how much you're going to get when this is all done. I'm, I'm afraid to guess it because I don't want to curse it because uh, you're already halfway there, halfway your goal. Now, imagine when this posts, I'm sure it's going to be better than that. But, Bob, all kinds of great stuff. Wonderful to talk with you. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to do this again. Maybe when you have other future stuff, we can talk again because it was a real pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it was great. Thank you, Wayne. I, I, I really enjoyed it. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored. I can be destroyed, but as a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast. So you can keep reading your comics. Here's a Facilder is where steampunk comics and metal collide. It's also an apocalyptic sci-fi set in a steampunk world. And I'm talking tonight with the two of the main creators, and that's Matt Knowles and Steph Cannon. Let's see, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Wayne. How about yourself? I'm, uh, I'm feeling good, man. Good, good. And Steph, how are you? I am doing excellent. It's always great to be on here chatting with you. That's very good. I usually go ladies first, but this time I thought, eh, we'll do it different. That's so okay. We'll go, we'll go that way. Now, of course, the big thing we got to talk about right away is you have a Kickstarter going on. And I hope I'm, I, I, when it comes to stuff, I hope I'm pronouncing right. Heirs of a Silder, the Perilous Prospects, books one through three is what's going on. And as we're speaking, we're recording a little early. It's, you are at 75% of your goal. 
Mm-hmm. And that goal is $3,500. Uh, math people will know right away what it is. But by the time this posts, hopefully you're, you're past that and into all kinds of good stuff. Uh, and the thing that everybody gets mad at me because I don't say it soon enough, this project will only be funded if it reaches its goal by Thursday, February 29 at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay, we got all the business stuff done uh, right away. Uh, let me read the description, too. I think this, this is a little help. It says, will Michael Isildur's return from his supernatural sabbatical be enough to turn the tide on the apocalyptic, apocalyptic collapse of Shadow's Haven? So all kinds of good things going on. Uh, why don't we start out? Maybe, Matt, you can. What is Heirs of Isildur about in case somebody hasn't heard of it before? Sure, sure. So the origins for Heirs of Isildur are about a uh, watchmaker in a puritanical, conservative, steampunk village named Shadowshaven. Uh, the original arc, The Crossroads Conundrum, followed Michael Isildur as he uh, uncovered this hidden laboratory that had been lost to time and decay. Um, there was machinery in there. He's curious by nature, and he ended up repurposing some parts in there, realized that these machines actually could open up time portals, and they started bringing people from other eras to him. Uh, his conundrum there was, do I continue to help these people? Because everyone that was coming through was in a point where they may either have been right on the edge of dying or they were in a part of complete loneliness. But by pulling them through, he was also jeopardizing the timeline, which he had worked to uh, perfect um, in Shadowshaven. So that arc, the Crossroads Conundrum, ends with an apocalyptic event that um, that takes place that he and his people are unintentionally a part of. Uh, the Perilous Prospects, we kind of switch the angle and it's been a story about how this apocalyptic event has not only affected him and his people, but have affected um, the village of Shadowshaven and all the people that are around. And the first book in this series, um, the pitch was um, that they needed to, that apocalyptic event was overtaking Shadowshaven. And the only way to stop it might be through those who unintentionally caused it. And one of the interesting things to tie back into what you just said right there about uh, his return from a supernatural sabbatical. When uh, the Crossroads conundrum ends, Michael finds himself in a coma and basically he's just away. He's not where he can be of use to his people. And up until this point in the perilous prospects, he has basically just been in a bed and just a prop and everyone else has had to figure out how to survive. And basically our main story is around every person that has got some kind of tie to this guy that is unable to do anything. And many of them didn't had never even met each other before Michael went into this coma. So it's interesting seeing the personal dynamics and the way that these characters figure out how to actually exist together and depend on people that they never even knew existed before this apocalyptic event has taken place. Okay. All right. Now, as I read it here on the website, it says, oh, I haven't said that yet. Uh, you need to go to, as I said, Heirs of a Silder, The Perilous Prospects, books one through three. Uh, if you look on Kickstarter, and of course, the Silder is I-S-I-L-D-U-R, which I think is important for people. Internet is, is merciless when it comes to that. Now, Steph, it says on here, he uh, Michael returned with a clear vision and purpose. But unfortunately for him, so much changed while he was gone. What was the clear 
purpose and vision that he had when he that he came back with? Well, I think for him, he was he he feels an immense sense of relief in first of all knowing that he's not dead <laughs> because he kind of has this very strange experience while he's in this coma, and when he awakens, he's he he's relieved that he's there that his friends are okay or so he thinks and everything about his identity has been turned upside down so so much of him was wrapped up in being the timekeeper the watchmaker for shadowshaven uh at the father time emporium and to his great alarm he realizes that his new friend who has has become one of his closest friends at this point shiver is now in this kind of it's not necessarily an alternate timeline but the way that the portals have changed everything shiver's now in charge shiver's basically taken michael's place not because he's wanted to uh but the 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 stars have aligned that way and so uh it's a roller coaster of emotions for him almost immediately. Okay. Now, before we get into, uh, I want to talk about this more, but there was another graphic novel you guys did. Uh, I am Keto. Yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. You is absolutely that, are. Okay. Is, is that pre, because uh, I wanted to make sure I get my timeline straight. This is before Perilous Prospects or during or what? Okay, so that's a good question. So, so I am keto. Uh, where the connection point is for I am keto is at the start of issue one, or actually, you would find the actual start point is about halfway through issue one of the Perilous Prospects. So, how how uh, Tales from Nocturnia connects in to the Crossroads Conundrum. I am keto connects into uh, the perilous prospects. So I am keto um, follows the character keto Ascatoyo, who we meet uh, later on in issue one of their perilous prospects. And it basically covers his entire life and history uh, in the, in the Yamaran empire. And we get to see what was going on with him. We get to see what was going on in that kingdom. And the pitch line for that one was that there was, uh, we got to follow the tragic tale of an empire's ultimate demise. And we get to see how certain things were taking place in that empire right before he got called through a portal. So basically where I am keto pretty much ends is the very beginning of where things start in the perilous prospects. And one of the things that we'll see when we get into uh, issue three is that some of the experiences that happened to keto are going to play a pivotal role in how the group that is there in Shadows Haven and the people that have come together around Michael, um, how they decide to proceed. Because Keto has basically brought some information that he learned um, in the Yamaran Empire and the tragedy that went on there. Um, he's going to be bringing some of that information to the group. And when we talk about Michael's purpose, one of the things that will happen in issue three is Michael will divulge what he believes his purpose is. And that might be, um, he's been in a coma for about a month. And so what he thinks his purpose is, it might be completely counter to what the rest of the group knows the purpose needs to be. 
So we get to explore how they all come to terms with that. Mm, okay. So keto is best read before perilous prospects. Sounds like, um, I, I think, I think that you, <laughs> if you would want to read it, um, we position it between books two and three because that's where it's it's most needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't really think you have to read it. We put enough about what happens in I am keto um, in the, like in the notes of issue two and issue three. So if you're a reader and you're like, oh man, this sounds like it's going to be you know an, an enormous project to read, you could go in and just read heirs of a seal to the perilous prospects and not read I am keto at all and still have the the beats that you need to understand that where I am keto plays its part is that there's a whole other storyline and characters and struggles and, and plot points and things like that, that happened there that make keto into who he really is. So the things that you need to know from keto, keto is going to tell you in book three. Um, so it's kind of a parallel story. It's not like you really need to, you definitely don't want to read it after, like you don't want to get to the end of issue three and then go and read it. Then as long as you read it, if you're going to read it, read it, but before, um, you start issue three and you're good to go. Cause I read that one. I got to read that one all the way through, which I really enjoyed, by the way, I thought that was, that was a, a, I love things with little twists here and there where I don't expect them. <laughs> and that had a, a, a nice twist in there that I will not mention because I want people to enjoy that like I did. It was <laughs> – I, I do have a question, though. That that, that book always br- brings up something that, that bothers me every time. Why is it always the firstborn? You know, because <laughs> the, 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 the firstborn is always the, uh, you know, the one, the 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 – you know, because not being the firstborn, I, I always get a little. Uh, I, that always bothers me a smidge. So I, I just sort of curious because what happens in in with, with keto is keto is actually not the firstborn. That's a little. That's an important part of that story. What happens after that is what makes it really interesting to me. And it, it was really a good story. I got to read it, and when I got to the end, I was really oh wow okay. You're setting up this character, obviously, to be involved with with uh, uh, perilous prospects, and so really good. I really enjoyed the story. I it was fun to see you guys in a different setting. Uh, that's much more of a uh, oh gosh, that that part of the world now always wants to be referred to a certain way, and I always forget the right one. We just say Far East. Far East. Okay, that's good. That, yeah. that, that <laughs> cause that is because uh, see you guys tell a Far Eastern story was was kind of fun. To see you guys stretch those uh, writing muscles a little differently. Was that – where did the keto come from? Just because I'm, I'm fascinated by that book. Where, where did that whole story come from? Was that you guys talking about Perilous Prospects and who was going to be involved, and you decided to flesh that one out? Uh, where did he come from? I feel like so- these characters really kind of take on a life of their own, and I know – in the very early inceptions of heirs, uh, it was known what types of characters were going to come through the portals. And Keita was always, I think right from the beginning, it was known what type of character he was going to be and what area of the world he was going to come from. And at somewhere along the line, and I think Matt probably has a little bit more clarity on this, that Keto just became such a, such an interesting character to both of us. And we said, you know, 
his story and what happens to his empire could be a story in and of itself. And the more we talked about it, the more we said, you know, maybe we should do that. And we really haven't explored that area of the world before. And the great thing is, is that we try to make sure with the worlds that we create, that they're very based, very much based on real world areas. So like Matt said, we say Far East, there's a lot of Japanese influences to this, but it is a fictional Far East land. So that way we can kind of take some liberty where we need to, so that it doesn't have to be completely historically accurate, but still pays homage to that culture in that area of the world. And we did a lot of research and we did a lot of research on the language and we make sure that there's a guide in there when they uh, kind of use some phrases that are Japanese, what they mean. Yes. And um, um, it is a very big cultural thing with firstborn. And <laughs> I think if you were to ask anybody in the Yamaran Empire, and Matt may have a completely different answer, but I feel like they would say, that's just how it is. <laughs> that's how yep. it's always been. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's just, an answer as to why. That's, that's just how it's been. And um, so another, another piece of insight in that is um, when, when we were getting ready to start the arc for the perilous prospects, I had tons of notes. I had notes for the perilous prospects while we were still releasing issues for the crossroads conundrum. We had tons and tons and tons of things. And I had so many notes that it was overwhelming. Normally I would put those things together for the crossroads conundrum. Um, I would put it together and then Steph would be just like a, a fan would be, even though she was involved and even though she was the editor and she was helping to co-write it, um, she would get a vision of what my thought was after the fact. And then we would kind of construct it when it came to the perilous prospects. I was like, listen, I've got too many ideas, too many potential start points. I'm overwhelmed by it and literally opened up the folders. And I'm like, here is every puzzle piece that we could potentially use. Now let's put them together in a way that makes sense. The first thing we did was take what became nightmare scenario, which is the piece that fits in between the crossroads conundrum and the perilous prospects, a short little uh, issue. We pulled that out, made that its own thing. And it really cleared up where we were going to go with the, pro the perilous prospects. There were a ton of characters that we had potentially fleshed out that we were going to use in the story. We had a minimum of four more characters we were going to pull in through the portals. But part of what Steph brought to the table was like, there's too much. There's too many things here, too many competing potential story arcs, too many potential plot points that it's just going to start getting lost. And as we started looking at these characters, Keto was the one that we're like, this is going to be the character that's going to be the one that's going to stay because we wanted to bring somebody in from a culture that was completely different. It wasn't, um, it wasn't American. It wasn't European. It wasn't something where it was English as a first language. And we wanted it to be something that every character in heirs saw him and was like, Whoa, this doesn't make any sense. What is a samurai doing here that every reader was going to be like, okay, something big is going to come from him. And like what Steph said, I am keto originally was only going to be 10 to 12 pages in um, the perilous prospects uh, trade paperback. And when we started putting the pieces together, 
really early on, we were like, yeah, this not, this has to be a full thing. And a full thing turned into 40 pages, turned into 60 pages, turned into 80 pages. If you looked at the Kickstarter campaign for it, in the title, the header at the top, it says, I am keto 60 page issue. And it turned into an 80 page issue because we kept on knowing that to do the story justice, we had to expand this thing out by a page or two, expand that out by a page or two, make sure we had that proper end credit scenes without, without giving anything away. There's the, the post credit scene that helps to set up some other future things, not for keto, but still potentially in that environment. And we wanted to make sure we had room to do that and have it not feel rushed. See, what I love about you guys' books is it's so thoughtful. Uh, all this consideration is going in. I mean, I love the, the explanation of the words that that are not likely to be in other stories or something like that. I was able to go back and check those and stuff. And I, I, I love the story. I love the introduction to a different culture. And, you know, because your books are really, you know, they talk about diversity. Your stories are always very diverse. Uh, a wonderful uh, business of, of different cultures coming together and finding common purpose and making things happen together. And I think that that's one of the things I really enjoy uh, about your stuff. The Insymmetry stuff is just just very much fun. And, and I, I couldn't be a better time for these to come out than to see uh, groups gathering together and actually you know, making a difference and, and, and accomplishing important things together like this. I think really, really nicely done. I have to say that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and I, I definitely I'm glad that you pick up on that from us. Um, one of the things I always say, and I kind of believe this in my life, is I say that when people meet, they meet at a crossroad. And it is all to like right now, this is a crossroad right here. We are meeting at a crossroad, which is recording this podcast. And we all three have a common purpose, which is to make this specific podcast be the best that it can. Once this podcast is done, will we have other potential intersections in our lives? Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Um, but while we're here at this crossroad, we want to make sure we make it the best that we can. That's our common interest. And there's so much in the world right now of people trying to find ways to divide everybody. I'm going to have this opinion. And if you have a different opinion than me, well then bump that and I'm going to write you off. And I believe the complete opposite. I believe where I'm like, I want to find the intersection point that I have. What's the commonality that I have with a specific person where we can go and enjoy our time together right there. If we can go and find that one spot, whether it be rooting for the same sports team or playing in a fantasy football league together or liking a certain type of music or liking a certain type of literature, that might be, um, that may be the only space where I can have an enjoyable time and, and a common interest for that person. And that's going to be where I'm going to, uh, going to enjoy that time with them. And that's how we try to approach things like, especially heirs of a sealed or where you have all these people that come from very different places their commonality is they are either alone or they're isolated or they were in a spot where whether it's from themselves or external elements have isolated them in this group of like literal ragtag misfits, which to, to borrow from another one of our titles, um, you know, they come together out of a common loneliness to make this group that becomes inseparable. 
Because hmm. I worked at a newspaper. Uh, I'm that old, and I there was it was funny to me in the office to watch the alignments changed based on what was going on. Uh, like for example, if we were talking politics, there were certain groups that aligned together uh, and, and stood together. But then sports would come along, and those lines would completely shift around. Different people te- were different teams. Some people were against certain teams. And so uh, all this alignment would go on. And I always got a kick out of watching those things alternate based on what was going on. And I, I kind of think sometimes that's the way we are. If we could just kind of get a broader perspective, we might see that not everybody thinks exactly the same. And some of us are going to group together. And sometimes some of us going to change depending on what's going on. So I, I always look at that. And so that, that was kind of my take on all that. But uh, I, I, one thing I do want to point out on the Kickstarter page, there's a where are we in the story uh, section. And it has lots of good information, which I could probably spend the whole rest of this podcast reading because got lots of good things going on there but I, I I think I would encourage people to go to the website and and read those because there's a lot of interesting things in there stuff like that oh boy I could spend the whole time talking about that but we probably better talk about what items are available and I get, there's a there's a wonderful line that says what add-on items aren't there <laughs> which I like because you've got shirts and music and it looks like socks and books and you name it, leatherworks and all kinds of amazing stuff. The more that goes along, the, the more fun and really interesting add-ons and comes. I think it says the story expands, the the add-ons and things expand with it, it seems to me. And you guys do such a great job with that. You can take that one, Steph. One of the things that we like to make sure is, is we do, we, we, we have a lot of support merch. Um, a lot of it, though, is items that people have asked us for. And we try to make sure that what we're marketing towards are the things that people have really responded well to. Uh, we have people either through backing the Kickstarter or coming up to our booth if we're at a show that really love the glow in the dark stuff. Glow in the dark is just cool. It's always been cool. It's always going to be cool. <laughs> and we had. Um, we had some glow-in-the-dark jacket patches um, that we've been selling for a while. And we decided, you know, we've, we've had guitar picks before in the past because music is part of what we do. And so this campaign, we're offering glow-in-the-dark guitar picks because why not? <laughs> and we found some that look really cool. And so that's a that's an item that is available this campaign that people seem to be really excited about. It's really great. I think that you guys do such a wonderful job doing it. I wanted to point out something that I also get a huge kick out of are the 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 tiers that you guys have. You your groupings. There's one there's a single cover tiers and you go standard or metal and there's like at least four of those. Then there's the wearable based tiers. And there's all shirts and socks and and different groupings of those. The homage cover catch-ups that, that gives you a chance to catch up all the covers. Then there's the music-based tiers. Uh, sometimes you get books. Sometimes you get vinyl. Sometimes uh, I think there are there digital. I think there's digital music. Yeah, there's there's MP3 albums in there. Yep. yep. And then there's the digital PDF packs that get you as four of those looks like. 
that gets you to, to get the, the digital versions out. And then there's what I like, the, the bottom of the barrel, the whole bunch is the completionist tiers. Standard and metal uh, looks like covers. And then there's the catch up the entire uh, airs and extended arcs and the absolute standard and metal head. 25 quantity and on the completionist metal head which is nice just all kinds of amazing stuff it's always i think a good sign when a when a comic breeds more than just the comic and i think that you guys have done such a spectacular job of doing it. and not only that but organizing them. <laughs> well, and, yeah, one of the one of the things that we try to do is we always say that we want the IP that you're going to read in that book to when you're done with it and you put it on the shelf, we don't want it to disappear onto that shelf. We want there to be something that is repeatable, some kind of repeatable enjoyment from, um, from the IP, whether it's music, whether it's socks that you like to wear or shirts that you like to wear or a guitar pick that you want to have on display or something like that. Uh, we want there to be things that are going to take the IP out of just those printed pages and bring them elsewhere into your world. And part of the reason why we group those tiers like that with, with the new stuff that Kickstarter allows, Kickstarter makes you put a picture over each tier now on the tier side. They used to not do that. So it used to be where you had to show every single tier in a campaign on the story side. And we had, we started this campaign with 46 tiers because, because we always wanted to make sure that there was a way to do catch ups. Like if somebody wanted to catch up with just the main covers for one through three, you had them. If they wanted one through three plus keto, one through three plus keto and nightmare scenario, they wanted everything, including tales from Nocturnia the crossroads conundrum and then whatever it may be, there were just so many permeations of tiers that could be there. We wanted to make sure that people could at least see those groupings that you brought up. Hey, you know what? There are musically based tiers. There are catch up tiers. There are these kind of tiers. There's more than what's here. But if you're somebody that's like, Hey, you know what? I'm into metal music. I can go and look for a tier that's got metal music, or I can go into the add-ons and find that there are some people that would say there might be too many tiers, but when you've got the amount of stuff that we do, you know what? If we don't put a tier out there, there's no way somebody's going to take it. So we'd rather put a tier out there, spend the time to develop it. If somebody wants it, great. If not, well, they're not choosing it because it wasn't there to be chosen. They're not choosing it because they just chose something else. I got to ask, how do you keep track of all these good things? Because you know, you not you not only are you creating a comic and multiple stories within the comics, you've got all these other tiers and things going on. I mean, do you guys keep track of that, or do you have somebody who keeps track of all those things? I want to ask about the music, too. We're going to get to that in a second. But I'm just curious as to how you keep track of all the the insymmetry creation things. Is that Do you guys do that? Who does that? Uh, Google helps us a lot. Google is definitely, uh, you know, you agree with that stuff or Google oh, Docs yeah. and Google Sheets and <laughs> and yeah. a little Google, bit of a It lit- helps that we are both very organized individuals, and so we – are just kind of naturally inclined to know what we need to do, but it's Matt is all about spreadsheets. He is a spreadsheet guy. He has converted me over to spreadsheets, even though a lot of times I still (laughs) struggle with how to, (laughs) sometimes I click on a row and it's like the whole thing disappears. And I'm like, I don't even understand how I just did this, (laughs) but, but it is, it, you have to be that way. Uh, Thankfully we live in a digital age where everything can be shared between 
you know, devices. I mean, I'm on the West Coast in California and Matt's on the East Coast in Florida. And we're able to have, you know, be able to look at the same document together at the same time on our computers. It's just, it's incredible that, and I'm very thankful that we live in an age that we can do that. But yeah, it's definitely Google Docs, Google Sheets. We take notes on everything. That truly is the one that keeps most of that organized. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't, you know, get in there from time to time and, and you know, keep things organized as well. But if we didn't have uh, spreadsheets, and we share them with our artists as well. So for this particular book, Alessandro Ventura is our main artist. And we're typing up the script and then sending it over to him. And he has a version that he pulls up so that he knows what to draw. Wow, this is great. See, the great thing is you guys actually have met face-to-face because, like, for example, when Richard Rivera's uh, uh, book, uh, the, the creative team never was in the same room together. Yep, never. He was The writer act, we did meet the artist, but the, the colorist was over in the Philippines. So we could never quite get all that together. And, and, and it's, it's great that you guys are able to – it helps, I know, to, to – to, be able to use the internet and stuff, but every once in a while you just got to face to face and, and talk things out. And it just seems that it's so great that you guys can do that, which, which leads me before we get to the music, I still want to talk about that. But uh, as far as personal appearances and things like that, because where the world is starting to get back to those kinds of things, are you guys making more personal appearances these, these days? How are you doing that? Again, you've got a bi-coastal way of doing things. How do you guys arrange that? Which, how do you decide where to go and what to do? Well, that's an interesting topic that you bring up. I think that right now we probably are going to end up doing less personal appearances this coming year than we did in 2023 or even 2022. And that's partially because some of the opportunities that we would have had previously, whether it be smaller cons or uh, comic book stores uh, don't exist anymore. Um, or, you know, or just it could be something where just the 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 con culture is kind of changing right now, where there is a lot less room for writers like Steph and I are to make good money at a show. Uh, an artist is going to have a better chance to make money. Um, celebrities that are doing uh, right now, the industry is booming for celebrities when it comes to doing signature and photo ops. Like, I mean, they're, they just Megacon just happened and some people were charging 200 bucks for a signature and a photo. And I'm like, must be nice. I mean, Hey, if they can make it great, but mm-hmm. you know, if we made 200 bucks in a day at, at a smaller show, we'd be jumping for joy. Um, but they just made $200 flat just for, for showing up and signing and signing a name and taking a selfie. Um, so what we try and do is we try and look at one, what is the experience that there is it going to make sense for Steph to come from, uh, California to Florida to be involved or to the East coast or to, you know, the center of the country, or, uh, 10, uh, Louisiana, um, for the specific show, uh, we are really trying to look at what is the risk versus reward. Um, is it a show like, honestly, I like, you know, one day or two day smaller shows much better than like the, the mega shows, the mega shows, everybody wants to be able to say, Hey, I went and did this. I went and did that. But the likelihood of a smaller guy right now, being able to make the kind of money, um, that they need to make to make that show make sense when the rooms are being drained by signatures and photo ops, I'd much rather be at a smaller show and be a bigger fish in the smaller pond because we have a much better chance of, of making that money at those things. Right. Right. Cause I was at MegaCon too. And, and I, 
I was interested because Artist Alley there was literally Artist Alley. There were no writers or, or, or comic creators in there. But next to that, if you went like a, if you could tell, there was an IDW comic company booth. And I went over there and all of a sudden I noticed not very far from where they were, there were actually comic creators and stuff like that and writers and things. So it's I, I'm not sure that, that we've figured out what we want to be when we grow up when it comes to conventions yet. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting thing. So let's get to the music. I don't want to uh, keep teasing the music and not get there. Now, I think that you're the music guy of the bunch, right? I am. I am. Okay. So uh, now, do you, you write the music, perform the music? How much of the music do you, do you have involvement with? Yes, all of it. <laughs> okay. okay. So, um, so yeah, before Steph and I started doing this, um, I was a musician. Um, that was what, that was where my creative outlet was, was doing music. And I stopped playing music. I was tired of it. I was burnt out. Uh, but I always had the desire to want to write. And when I wanted to decide to get back into writing again, um, I wanted more. And that turned into doing music alongside of you know, it was going to be like an ebook that turned into an illustrated novel, turned into a comic. Working with Steph, meeting Steph, actually turned that desire to make a comic into actually making a comic and not an illustrated novel that was masquerading as a comic. Um, so that that part of our of our coming together um, helped turn it into actually comics and graphic novels. Um, but we still always have a side of what we do that has got music involved uh we did a full album did a full album the crossroads conundrum before the crossroads conundrum arc we did a full album heirs of a sealer versus tales from nocturnia uh that's got five songs for heirs five songs that help expand out tales from nocturnia and then recently it's just been a song here or there or um the teaser of a song like did a, a jingle uh, basically for Misfits Clubhouse. So there's actually a Misfits Clubhouse um, jingle that was on the uh, campaign video that at some point I will actually expand it out because that song has got full lyrics and it's actually designed in a way that is much different than the metal music that we normally write. Um, I Am Keto, uh, the first thing that was released for I Am Keto was its theme song, Spiral Into Madness. And that song in and of itself um, help expose more of what I am Keto was about than what we had given um, in the, we had like a five page sampler or an eight page sampler. The song, if you put that eight pages with the song, you actually learned more about what was coming up than if you just read the comics. Um, so for I am Keto, we have the full version of that. And then we have an orchestral version where it's all the metal instrumentation and vocals stripped out and you just have the keys and the violins. Um, and then for this campaign, um, there is going to be a brand new song. And if you listen to the, our trailer, which we are having fun with our trailer video in the campaign right now, it's only a 15 second teaser. It's a 15 second song teaser. And that's the only campaign video we have by the end of the campaign. We'll probably have a minute long version up there just so we can show off a little more of the song that's going to come with this campaign. And I believe that Steph and I have made the decision right now that this is probably going to be the way that we're going to release music uh, as we go forward. It's probably going to be a song here, a song there. Maybe there might be two songs at the same time. And then if we decide at a certain point, once we've gotten enough to fill up an album, or if there's like, Hey, we've got 
eight songs done and now we might put two more together that'll be you know the first time you hear them is on the album we might go that way i don't foresee us making the decision to be like we just have to come up with a full album right now and and release that with 10 new songs that people haven't heard because honestly nobody really consumes music that way anymore i would say maybe five to ten percent of music fans do that anymore and mostly in the metal world but most people are just getting a song here or there from youtube or from spotify or wherever it may be so we want to make sure that our efforts and our time and our dollars are being spent um efficiently in the way that we produce the music okay and steph is involved in that too i heard you say yeah, Steph, um, she, she got a chance to do a little bit of uh, some vocals on one of the songs. And whenever I can find a way to get her involved, uh, she will be. Um, but most importantly, how Steph is involved and the most important part of that process is, I would say, almost more from an executive level. Like, you know, there's only so much time that she and I have to be able to create. And, you know, we both, we, everything we do, whether it's her, um, Steph does articles, um, for Fangoria and Horror Geek Life and Creepy Kingdom and Daily Dead. And, and, um, I know I'm, I left one out of there, Steph, but, um, um, whether it's horror her buzz. writing those, yeah, horror buzz, that's it. Whether it's her writing those articles and us, you know, she's the one that writes the articles. I just edit them after the fact, but she's the one that's got the context and does the articles and does all the legwork on that. But that doesn't mean that, I don't have a say so in that because if she was ever to be like, Hey, I've got 15 articles to write, but they're all free and I'm not going to get paid for them. We would have a conversation because we would say that may not be the best use of our collective time because we have other things we need to be putting it towards. And so a lot of her, her involvement, um, comes from the executive level or kind of reviewing the lyrics and seeing if the lyrics make sense. And just, you know, from that, from that producer standpoint is a lot of times where her biggest involvement is on the music side. Music is a very interesting medium too, where when you are the one creating the music, it's very difficult to step aside and hear with an ear that isn't already so intimately familiar with it, even more so than writing Uh, And so even though I, you know, I mean, my background in music is very, very little. And I definitely was not a musician in the way that Matt was. But there are times when I mean, so his ear is much more formally trained than mine. But that doesn't mean that as a music lover my entire life. And I, you know, played violin and was in choir when I was younger, that there may be certain uh, aspects that I might be able to hear that he's just so deeply involved in it. And so I might point out and say, hey, you know, you know, did you mean for the drums to be, you know, louder in this section? And that's kind of something that we can take back. So I'm no expert, but sometimes it helps to have a fresh ear that isn't as familiar with that part of the creative process to kind of hear it and give their insight. Yeah. Cause when I was helping Richard with writing stab the bunny, what he would do is he would give me a page to proofread and he wanted to get my reaction to it. And one time he wanted because I want to make sure this is really funny. And he got to the end of it, and I said, nah, it's not funny enough. <laughs> and, and he went back, and he made it funnier. And yeah. so, you know, see, it, it helps to have somebody you can bounce off. I, I really do believe this. So I, like when I hear certain Hollywood people who they, they write, and they take it verbatim and put it out on the screen and stuff. And I'm like, 
I don't think that's going to work so well because I think when people have, when you've got somebody who can tell you, wait a second, that works, or wait a second, that doesn't work. I think that is so good. I, that's why I think you guys are, are such a powerful team because you can bounce off of each other and you 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 fill in with each other kind of things. You know, like Matt is the listed as creator, lead writer, and letters and stuff. Steph is listed as assistant writer and editor. But you guys do more than that. That that hardly describes the stuff that you guys do. So it's really something to see, but that's, that's creativity. It's, it's nice to see it go on like that. And I think you guys, are, it was just a perfect combination for you guys to work together. Well, I appreciate that. And I think one of the things I feel like every time that we've done your podcast, we've said the same thing um, because it, every time we do something, it just is proven more and more. Steph and I have the same goals when it comes to content creation and we both can trust what the other person is saying because we know that there's not ulterior motives. A lot of times you'll run into somebody that will try to convince you of a specific decision, not because it's the best decision, but it's because the selfish decision that's going to be the best for that specific person. And both of us just want to put out the best possible product that we can. We both want to have um, the best art, the best story, the best music that we're able to personally produce, the best articles. Um, you know, nobody loves having their stuff edited. Nobody loves having their um, <laughs> their 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 thoughts. So they just put this work into have somebody else have a critical eye or a critical ear to it. But we've both kind of gotten to the point where, yeah, we'll both, you know give a little bit of like the, you know, the, you know, sticking, you know, you know, stomp on your foot in the dirt and kicking it up. And well, gosh, darn it. I don't want to have to change that. And, you know, a little bit of like the, um, you know, I mean, we both do it, but in the end we understand why the person is bringing that to us and it's helped in Steph's article writing. It's helped in our construction of, um, of the, of all the scripts that we're putting together of all the titles that we do, because we know that if we both agree on it and we both are good with it, that, that it's at least past that test, you know, because, you know, nobody, neither one of us is knowingly going to be like, yeah, that definitely is the right thing to do. And we can look at it and go, yeah, that, that article kind of sucks. And I'm just kind of, you know, pat her on the back and say, it's good. Or she's going to say, yeah, well, that song is, is good. But knowing that it sounds like, you know, a dying cat outside or something like that, <laughs> you know, we both try to make sure that, that, we both wouldn't have a problem with putting our, our, our individual name or our business name on it because in the long run, that's what people are going to see as a reflection of what Insymmetry Creations and Matt and Steph are. I agree. I think it works really, really well. And uh, to get more of your stuff, it's at Insymmetry Creations, and we should, I probably should spell that, I-N-S-Y-M-M-E-T-R-Y creations.com. And there's all kinds of good things. I, it takes you to all the Kickstarters, and you get to explore the different creations, even including that Misfits Clubhouse is all there, too. It's it's funny to see Misfits Clubhouse across from Tales from Nocturnia with the great big guy with the axe. <laughs> yeah. I always find that, Chris. Where else are you going to put it? You know, it's, it it, it kind of shows the, the 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 width of the kind of things that you guys do. So it, it's great that you can do all that. It's just such a wonderful thing. And again, it's 
called, let me get the title up so I make sure I get it right. Why is it that so far down? There we go. Heirs of Isildur, The Perilous Prospects, books one to three. And as we're speaking again, you're about 75% there. And I'm hoping by the time this post, you're into the stretch goals and good things yeah, like that. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to. We're hoping to. The economy is tough right now. We know that mm. the, you know, it's, it's a lot more difficult for people to come off of, of hard-earned money to be able to support Kickstarter campaigns, but it's the same for us. You know, we want to be able to produce um, great products for you guys. And, you know, the only way we can do it is to have the support of the backer base that's out there so that that way we can put out great products. Um, you could also go to, I know you've already spelled out in symmetry creations. You could go to linktree.com forward slash in symmetry creations and you've got links to the kickstarters and music and everything that's there to steph's article writing is all there and if you want a, a quick earl to get to the kickstarter campaign you can go to tinyurl.com forward slash airs h-e-i-r-s-t-p-p-3 that's tinyurl.com forward slash h-e-i-r-s-t-p-p-3 Oh, very good, very good. Now, as a columnist, I wanted to mention this stuff too. I've gotten a chance to read some of your columns, and I really appreciate the columns too. I think those are really oh, well done. Oh, thank you. I appreciate very that. Nice. Very nice. Again, it's Heirs of a Silder, the Perilous Prospects books. Uh, I like double P's, Perilous Prospects. That always sounds good to me. And it's going to be con the project will be funded if it reaches its goal by Thursday, February 29, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So don't wait. After you get done listening to this interview, be sure to get out there and support uh, Matt and Steph on their wonderful stuff and just dive into this crazy world. It's got all kinds of wonderful stuff, lots of depth to it, which, of course, I really appreciate and lots of thought involved with it as well as creativity. So uh, you guys just keep up the wonderful stuff, and hopefully I'll get to talk with you again when more stuff comes down the road. Absolutely. I know that uh, we definitely – Always enjoy being here. I'll let Steph get the last word. As far as that goes, we love being here. We're definitely going to have a lot more fun stuff. And I want to give you one little quick tidbit, something you just mentioned that I think you're going to find interesting. You said it's interesting seeing Tales from Nocturnia beside Misfits Clubhouse. Do you know that we put a Tales from Nocturnia Easter egg in a Misfits Clubhouse story? Uh, there's, there's a story called Dress Up Mess Up where the kids go out trick-or-treating. And we had one of the characters dress up as a knight from the from the nocturnian kingdom <laughs> yep all right we love easter eggs we love putting them in wherever we can so that's always fun oh, that's great that makes it a lot of fun particularly people are smart are, understand enough to be able to get that i always think that's wonderful that just goes to show how good the uh, job you guys are doing so all i can say is just keep it up keep doing these wonderful things Thank you. We appreciate it and we are uh we always enjoy being on your show we love the questions that you ask and the the great conversations that we have. So we are happy to come back anytime. And that's it for this week. Be sure to be back next time when I'll have another great interview with yet another terrific comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics. Jordan of Earth, Green Lantern of Sector 2814. The Viceroy of Demrak 7 claims that when we assigned you to police crucial peace negotiations, you punched him in the face. Is this true? Uh, no, sir. I punched the Viceroy in the stomach. Then I headbutted him in the face. Sir.